Public opinion will almost always overshoot in both directions. When times are good, you're brilliant. They put a halo on you. When times are less good, they think you're awful. That's the voice of Phil Rosenzweig. He's the author of one of my top 25 business books, The Halo Effect and the Other Eight Delusions That Deceive Managers. Want to become a better critical thinker or become better at thinking for yourself or be challenged in what you know to be true, you are going to enjoy this conversation. Phil Rosenzweig, the author of The Halo Effect, that's coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. I want to give a tip of the cap to Ron Baker, the co-producer and the co-host of The Soul of Enterprise. Between episode 40 and 50 thereabouts, Ron mentioned The Halo Effect on his book list. And I'm thinking, how have I missed that book? The author is Phil Rosenzweig, and I started my conversation with him by stating this is one of the few books, one of the few that I read every year, and I also listen to it annually. Am I crazy? Well, you you probably uh, win a prize for tenacity, but I will say this. If you've read it over and over, I, I hope you will agree with me that the lessons don't go out of date. So I, I think it makes as much sense today as when you read it. Some of the examples might be different, but I think that the, the main lessons are have quite a bit of staying power. And and speaking of staying power, this book was written, published back in, in my notes, 2007. The Wall Street Journal and, and the Financial Times called this one of the best books of the year. My opinion is the best book of the decade. Are you still finding readers that approach you and say, we love this book some 15, 16 years later. Yes, I, I do. Uh, fewer now than some years ago, of course, but I still get people who write and say, uh, what an eye opener and, and thank you for writing this. And a lot of people, a lot of people say things that, that makes me very happy. They say, you know, uh, I always knew there was something wrong with various studies or books, but I, I didn't really know what was wrong until I read your book. And that has allowed me to be a more critical thinker. Uh, and that's really what I'm trying to get readers to do is to be able to think for themselves and to be able to know why something may not have the validity or the credibility that uh, that it claims to. Great, great, great point. And speaking of critical thinking, before we hit record, you're telling me a little bit about your career history. I'm just curious, Phil, where in the world did this idea come from? What made you decide, I'm going to write about the halo effect? And of course, this isn't just a few words and a few chat. There is a ton of research. So maybe that's a two a two-pronged question, but where did the idea come from? So I'm a, I was a professor of business administration. I taught uh, some years at Harvard, teaching mainly MBAs. And then I moved to a school called IMD, Institute for Management Development in Switzerland. We do almost all executive ed. And so for years, I was working with managers from companies on programs for executive development. And what I found was that the managers who would come to IMD from many different countries, they're, they're smart, they're hardworking, they're honest, they want to do the right thing, but they're very bad at critical thinking. And they would tend to believe what they would read in an article or a bestseller. And they did not have the capacity 
to understand what was rigorous research, good research, and what was not, which meant that they tended to believe what they were told. Uh, and I don't blame them for this, as after all, they were smart and hardworking. We were not teaching them to be good critical thinkers. So I began to, to take note of some of the common errors, I call them delusions, that pervade the business world. And after I'd collected quite a few of them, I thought, right, well, let me now try to write something that addresses these and gives people the ability to be better consumers of research. I want to be clear. I'm not trying to make anybody into a social scientist. We have enough of those. But I want people to be better consumers of what they read, whether they're reading a, a report from a consultant or an article in the newspaper or an article in you know Business Week, Forbes, Fortune, or a bestseller. This is what somebody is telling you. Well, that doesn't mean it's the case. You should be able, you, the reader, should be able to have some of your own um, capacity to judge for yourself if something is worthwhile or not. We want people to buy the book. We want people to read it. In fact, I, I probably, I, I want to say there's maybe about nine, eight books that I repeatedly recommend to peers, uh, friends, CEOs, and this one is near the top of the list. So even though I, even though I want to ask a very fundamental foundational question, what, what is a halo or what's your favorite short definition if you had to provide one on the fly? Something that, that as soon as I explain it, people will get it. We get this. It's just we might not all know the term for it. It's a term from psychology. It's when a general impression or a general evaluation leads you to make a specific judgment. So, for example, if you come across a product and it's from Apple, you might say, oh, I guess it must be innovative. You don't really know if it's innovative or not, but the name Apple and the brand has a halo. It's like a, a little halo over an angel and you go, oh my gosh, this must really be good. Branding is one example. And that's what, of course, what brands is, is people, companies try to put a halo on their product or service by the way they build their brand. Uh, the halo effect occurs in job interviews. Uh, and there have been tests, there have been experiments that show if somebody turns up for a job interview and their CV says that they graduated from a top school, everything about them looks a little bit better than right. if that same person turns up with a CV that says they went to just a, an average local school. We see them differently because of that. Now, let me tell you how this plays out in the business world with regard to company performance. If a company is doing really well, they're profitable, they're growing, their stock is on the rise, what do we naturally say about them? We say, oh gosh, they have a brilliant strategy, they got a visionary CEO, their people are really customer focused, they're great at execution, they got a strong corporate culture and so forth. We don't, may not know those things, but we infer them from the fact that it's a successful company. As soon as the company has a downturn, what do we say then? We say, oh, you know, they um, they they stopped following their their strategy wasn't that good after all. Their leader became arrogant. The people became complacent. They neglected their customers. Now, occasionally a company really does fall down in all those dimensions, but usually not. Usually what happens is maybe something else has led to the company to perform badly. Maybe a new technology they missed, maybe a, a couple of their rivals. Uh, merged and now are stronger. There's some reason why. 
But because the company's performance fails, we make up stories to make it coherent. So we infer things based on that. So the basic idea of the halo effect is that when you allow an overall impression to lead you to make specific judgments, as opposed to looking at each of those things on their own, you're falling victim to the halo effect. And it can be on the upside. That's generally what we mean. You know, they're doing well, so they must be great at all these things. Or it can be on the downside. That doesn't sound like a halo. Uh, the, The psychologist who first came up with this was a man named Edward Thorndike. He referred to the opposite of the halo as the horns effect. So you're either an angel or a devil. We don't usually talk about the horns effect. We talk about a positive halo or sometimes a negative halo. But it's the same idea. And so in the business world, we have to be very careful that we don't just make inferences or attributions about many factors based on an overall impression, but we're willing to examine them on their own. You you even call the halo effect, it's, it's a heuristic. And I never thought of that before. Yeah, it's a, it's you don't even know you're doing it, but it's a way that the mind achieves coherence. Uh, it's very hard psychologically, cognitively, it's hard to say, well, gee, Apple is great at these four things, but they're really bad at that one or these two. It's much easier to have a coherent picture where everything moves together. And that's what we see, for example, uh, I spent some time in the book talking about the Fortune magazine uh, ratings of most admired companies. And what you see is, while they say, well, we're looking at nine different factors, the way they measure them is is such that the factors really all move together. And if you have a good impression of a company, they tend to be highly rated on almost all nine. And if you have a bad impression overall, if the company is not doing well, they tend to sink in all of them. So it is a heuristic in the sense that it's a way that the mind takes a shortcut to achieve and maintain a certain coherence. I'm not going to ask what you do because... Again, you are a critical thinker, but l- let's 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 draw a picture. Let's have an avatar of this. I'm going to call him or her the rugged individualist. They're a business owner. They're they're plotting their way. They're at 50 million in revenue. They're headed to 100 million. They've read several books on CEOs. That that's what they drink for breakfast is books by famous CEOs. What's the advice? For them, even people like me uh, that read about successful people, how do we deal with that heuristic and start looking at this halo again in a proper lens? How do we deal with this? Okay, well, I'll answer that, and then I'll actually give you, I think, a very relevant story. The The way we deal with that, Mark, is we say, just because things are going well overall, it doesn't mean I'm good at all of these individual things. Right. Okay. I could I could be making record sales and profits, and, and that could be because I've got a great product design, but I still might be kind of weak when it comes to customer service, or I might be not very good at uh, how I'm treating certain employees. Just because I'm good overall doesn't mean that I'm good at everything. Now, I will tell you a little story about this because this is a company that, that actually came to me uh, when, when the book came out, this is a company uh, called ICICI. They are the biggest private bank in India. 
And they contacted me and said, you know, well, we really like your book. Are you going to be in India anytime soon? And I said, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm there next month. They said, well, come on by. And I said, you know, I'm glad you like my book, but why? And they said, well, this is why. Over the last few years, we have done really, really well. We are very successful. And every time we read about ourselves in the press, reporters think that we're just fantastic. They think we walk on water. Well, we think we're pretty good, but we don't think we walk on water. And if other people want to put a halo on us, that's their business. But we never want to fall victim to a halo effect about ourselves. We never want to imagine just because we've been doing well overall, we're good at everything. So we want to make sure that we understand the components of our performance and we evaluate them in ways that are objective and data-based and not simply inferences from an overall impression. So can you help us do that? So we, you know, we did. And we, we spent some time thinking, how do you measure the performance of a bank? You know, non-performing loans and certain administrative costs, things that you can measure in an objective way that are not simply going to be inferred from overall performance. And that's what I would recommend in general CEOs do. By the way, let me add a little coda to the story. That was in 2007. And um, so, you know, I, I went back and I did a workshop with them and then I went away. Well, a couple of years later, I wanted to take a student group to India. So I called them up. They said, oh, Phil, we were just talking about you. And I said, why were you just talking about me? And they said, because when we saw you in 2007, everything was going great. But now it's 2010. We had a financial crisis. Banks got hammered. Uh, our, our market cap fell. And we got beat up in the press. And every time we looked in the papers, people were now saying how bad we were. Well, you know what? We weren't as good as people said we were in 2007. But we're not as bad as people say we are now. And there's a lesson there, which is public opinion will almost always overshoot in both directions. When times are good, you're brilliant. They put a halo on you. When times are less good, they think you're awful. And, you know, usually you need to buffer yourself from both extremes by saying, I'm not interested in what attributions people make. I want to understand the real uh, the real components of my performance, and I want to be able to measure them in a way that is objective and data-driven. And by the way, I'll just add a footnote to what you just said at the very beginning of the book. You're going to hear that story again, not with that company, but with Lego. And it's repeated with Cisco, and there are a couple other uh, companies. So with the story you just shared, there are many others in the book. But And by the way, the, the Lego one was exceptional. Uh, great, great, great example. I want to move on to just some of the big ideas in this book. And I'm a little bit embarrassed because there are many big ideas. So I just said, Mark, you get to pick three. J just, just, let's just go with three. So the first one is, and I have nothing against this author. Uh, he, he is very interesting to read. Uh, I told you before we hit record, for CEOs who don't read books, I always want the clients I work with to be readers. And the first book I will have them not read but listen to is Good to Great because the writing is, it's sticky. 
And by the way, I have Jim Collins' very first book. It's a paperback. It's about how to run, build a business. It's pretty boring. So comparing it to his first book, To Good to Great, which I believe he co-authored with Jerry Porras, writing's just much more sticky. It's fun, all these great ideas. But I did find it fascinating to be able to read just the way you view some of his key concepts. And at some point, I'm going to get around to asking a question, Phil. But what is, let's not pick on Jim Collins, but what is one of the fundamental problems with books such as his? I would even go so far to say Vern Harnish has a couple of books for scale-ups, And even books like his are not going to work for every single organization. Plus, we're never going to hear about the organizations that use those books and it didn't work. Okay. Well, there's a few few ways I can get at that. Uh, I do spend some time in my book uh, talking about a few companies in some depth. But then I talk about some studies that have been done where, where academics or researchers have said, right, well, let's now not talk about one company. Let's, let's try to understand what are really the drivers of high performance. And that's fine. Um, the, the very first one I described, of course, we go back now 40 years, is In Search of Excellence by um, Tom Peters and Bob right. Waterman. But then others after that, as you mentioned, um, uh, Porus and Collins and then Collins and some others I talk about, have all tried to say, let's do a really good job of trying to understand what drives high performance. Now, let me come back to the halo effect. The halo effect is when you've been essentially biased by an overall impression of performance, and it leads you to make some judgments about some factors that are influenced by that. You cannot then take data that have been influenced by what is known about performance and use those as variables to explain performance because they're actually biased by performance. There's a problem here of circularity. And so a lot of these studies claim to gather a lot of data. Oh, look how much data we gathered. And, and of course, the reader says, oh, man, you know, I didn't gather. I didn't spend three years gathering all these data. These people must know something I don't. But if you look at the data, some of the data, not all, but some of it, and in many cases, I think the most important data are actually corrupted by being biased by the results. This is a fundamental flaw in any kind of scientific research, whether it's laboratory research or social science, doesn't matter. Anytime you're trying to explain something, the thing you're trying to explain, we call the dependent variable. The thing you're you're using to explain the dependent variable, we call them independent variables. So, for example, maybe I'm interested in... um, High blood pressure. What leads to high blood pressure? Well, it could be genetics, it could be diet, it could be obesity, it could be all kinds of things. But we want to make sure that the things that I am using as my independent variables are not themselves shaped by what I know about the outcome. If something is shaped by the what I know about the outcome, it's not going to be a valid independent variable. And the problem we see over and over in these studies about company performance is they use as independent variables things that are shaped by what was known about performance. 
Uh, this may sound a little bit abstract, but uh, I, I can I can give you an example of this, and this Please. is not one of the books I've mentioned so far. Um, there, there's a book I mentioned in 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 in, in my book in the Halo Effect that tried to understand whether corporate culture is a driver, a strong corporate culture is a driver of high performance. I'm actually quite sympathetic to that. I used to work at a company that prided itself on a strong corporate culture. HP, right? At HP, at Hewlett Packard, back when it was a great company, back in the back in the back in the 1980s. So here's a couple authors, distinguished professors at Harvard Business School. They define corporate culture as when employees have widely held shared values, the idea is if if the employees of your company widely hold the same values, that's the the definition of a strong culture, and they say that's going to lead to high performance. That's fine. We're going to measure high performance, something about revenues, profits, whatever you want. And the question is, does having a strong corporate culture associate with or lead to that performance or not that's a fine question for research but now how are you going to measure whether the company has a strong corporate culture or not now there are ways you could do that well you could for example spend time within the company and ask people you know you could observe what values they seem to exhibit or you could ask a whole lot of people which of these values do you share and why But what you cannot do is what the authors did. They would send a questionnaire to somebody in the company and say, does your company have a strong corporate culture? Because what do we know about the halo effect? If I know that my company is a high performer, I'm going to say, yeah, of course we have a strong culture. Sure we do. It makes all kinds of sense. And if my company is not a strong performer, I'm probably going to say, oh, you know, I don't think our culture is that strong. It's not that what I say about culture drives performance. It's that what I know about performance shapes the way I perceive corporate culture. And therefore, the causality is backwards. Now, that is a problem with many larger studies that try to, draw, try to identify the drivers of high performance. They actually have it backwards. So if I come now to, to the book you mentioned... Um, or, or others like it, you know, they'll say things like, well, um, you know, uh, a company that has a, uh, a clearly stated uh, strategy is uh, that's that's a driver of high performance. Right. Well, show me any company that's a high performer and people will say, oh, yeah, we had a very clear strategy. Is it that a clear strategy leads to high performance or is it that high performance leads to a perception of a clear strategy. So that's a problem a lot of these empirical studies have, and they they seem credible because the storyline kind of makes sense, and they seem to have gathered a lot of data, and so forth. But they present their findings with an assurance of predictability that is that is misplaced. And what you've seen in every one of the books I mentioned and more is that a few years after the book comes out, a lot of the companies that were identified as being great performers recede. Exactly. Now, why do they recede? And the the immediate reaction is, well, I guess they stopped doing the things that made them successful. Well, maybe. But maybe 
actually we selected them because they were successful, told a story about them that seemed coherent with that success, but now for other reasons, they're just not as successful. So one of the things that I, and I do think this is a major problem in so many of those books, because of the mistakes they make in how they gather the data and how they reach their findings, they create a, they make a claim of guaranteed results that is misplaced. And that's a real flaw. What they talk about is if you do these things, this will happen, but it just never quite works out that way. And that I think is misleading and rather unfortunate. I do want to just add a couple other uh, tidbits or comments. Uh, first of all, one of the, my biggest takeaways in this book is this the reliance of measures, relying on measures, independent uh, performance. That is a huge huge, huge takeaway for me. Uh, number two, and I'm trying to remember in my last reading, if we, if you inferred this or hit it head on, help me out here, but I would love to see an expanded data set where these researchers go to, let's call them marginal companies. Do you have good culture? So is it possible to have a great culture but not great performance. So it's almost like, as you said, we're only focusing on a certain data set. Let's expand it to all companies. And yeah. I, again, that's sometimes missing in this research. Another delusion. And by the way, you hit what you actually, I think I was taking mental notes. I think you hit, uh, I think you had a couple of the other delusions in the book, but I want to hit one that also is really some overlap that's the problem with rigorous research. Oh, we 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 looked at a thousand companies, or you know, there were seventeen thousand hours of 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 research here. It may seem like common sense, but that can be a problem, right? Well, yes, there are. I think a lot of readers who are overly impressed by what appears to be extensive and rigorous research and uh, as i as i try to argue the the quantity of the data does not matter if the quality is not good and many people don't know or they don't have the confidence to say what is or is not good data so since they don't feel they can judge the quality they end up putting a lot of emphasis on the quantity but once you are able to sniff out some of the problems in the quality of the data, the quantity really doesn't matter. Um, the, the main idea in the book, I would say, is this notion, or one of the main ideas, is this notion about independence and to make sure that you don't allow overall impressions, halos, to uh, to have a, a, a biasing effect on, on the data. But then I add a few others, some of which are not really that surprising. And, uh, you know, I think we all know about correlation and causality. A few right. of them are just, you know, little cute things I threw at the end, like people who claim about organizational physics, which kind of makes no sense. But there is one of the others that I think really is important. And that's what I call the delusion of absolute performance. Um, and, and that's so central. In fact, I think if there are two that are most important, it's the first one about the halo effect and then this one about absolute performance. When you read these books that say, if you do these six things, you are guaranteed to be a, you know, a great success or you'll go from good to great or, you know, 
mediocre to magnificent or whatever they say. Um, the reason they make that mistake is because of how they have gathered their data, which are corrupted, but uh, and, and they're, they're biased because of the halo effect. But they're now falling victim to a second delusion, which is they say, if you do these things, you're bound to be successful because that's what we saw in the data set that we gathered. But ask yourself this question. If all companies in a given industry all do these things, will all of them be successful? And the answer, of course, is no, because in a free market economy, competition in a given industry is not going to be, um, it's not zero sum, but it's certainly not absolute. There is going to be some relative nature. Uh, you know, we're not all going to be the top of our industry, and an industry is only going to have so many companies that are going to be very high performers. So there is necessarily a relative dimension to success in any industry. Uh, these books don't show that because they've made mistakes in how they've selected their samples and how they've drawn on data that are not good predictors. So that's one of the things that I that that I fault in some of these books. So I'll come back to to Collins and Good to Great now. Um, there's a lot of good things in that book. You know, he says, "Be good to your customers, take care of your people, be persistent, and be and have integrity." Well, who could ever be against that? Those are all great things. However, he doesn't just say that. He says, "If you do these six things, you will be a successful company." Uh, with the precision of physics. That's total nonsense. And so what's what's missing there is an understanding of the nature of competition and the nature of relative performance. If everybody knew the formula for success and everybody followed it, they could not all be equally successful. What does that mean? That means that to be better than your rival, you've got to take some chances and incur some risks. Right. So there is necessarily, in any kind of competitive setting, some degree of making choices under uncertainty. And that is something that's extremely important in business, but you will never see it in these books that give you these facile six steps to greatness, not because they... I think not because they they didn't want to, but they didn't they didn't understand that because of how the data they picked were not right from the beginning. Uh, by the way, is this where I get my chance to throw in when the legend becomes fact? Print <laughs> the legend. Uh, by the way, this summer, a few weeks ago, I actually watched for the first time ever the man who shot Liberty Valance, and for whatever you know, how you read a book again and again, you learn something new. It's like, how come I've never watched this movie? It is a great John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart flick. It is outstanding. And, and thank you for putting in there. But I just have to read the line one more time. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. And you couldn't have picked a perfect line uh, for that section in the book. Very, very uh, well done. By the way, have, I take it you've seen the movie, right? Oh, yeah, I've seen the movie. Uh, I think uh, Lee Marvin is in there, too, isn't he? Oh, he was, an, he was an incredible uh, villain. You just wanted to hate him. He And I've liked him in other movies. I, that's the first movie I'd seen him where he was really, I mean, a terribly bad guy. Oh, so, yeah, he's, he's the heavy. But, you know, the, the idea there is that uh, 
we we like stories and we like stories that make sense exactly and, uh and i'm not against stories uh what i'm against is stories that claim to be science in fact stories that become credible because they claim to be not stories but science and for readers not to be able to know the difference so you know good to great to me is is a very nice comforting tale about how persistence and doing the right thing and caring about people and listening to customers and being a level five leader, gosh, it warms your heart. The problem is, if we all do those things, we are not all going to achieve the results that the book says we will with the precision and the predictability of physics. And so there's a fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of competition and the nature of making decisions under uncertainty. So one of the things I also try to tease out is the fact that things may not turn out well doesn't mean you made a mistake and the thing and 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 when things do turn out well it doesn't mean that you were brilliant. So there's a there's an imperfect connection between actions and outcomes in a competitive world. But that's not the kind of neat story that we like. So Stories are fine, uh, and they have a place, but let's not confuse them with good research, and let's try to understand the difference. I think it's fair to point out, I have two versions of your book. I have the original, but in the newest update. So if anyone has an older version, I highly recommend getting an update because you have a new chapter. It's on greed and hubris. Do you just want to just add a couple of bullet points about that? It, again, it is excellent. And I'm glad you added that to the original work. I, I didn't know you could make it better, but you did. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Um, so the, the, the book came out in 2007. And of course, and it did well, it got a lot of attention, a lot of good press. And I was very happy with that. Uh, but then, of course, 2008, 2009, financial crisis, Great Recession, so on and so forth. And so my publisher a few years later said, well, why not let's come out with a new version with a couple additional chapters? And one of the things that I talked about, again, are words like um, agreed and hubris, because I talked about the uh, the British Petroleum, Deepwater Horizon, and some other examples where corporate failures, uh, you know, Toyota as well, there was a safety issue yes. and a lot of talk about greed. And the point I'm making, I'm not saying there isn't such a thing as greed. What I'm saying is when things go bad, it's all it's very easy to point the finger at greed. When things are going well, we don't say the company is greedy. We say they're they're adding value. They're uh they're you know, they have satisfied customers who are happy to pay this price. Gosh, look at Apple, look at their margins. Well, we don't say they're greedy until there's some performance problem or some ethical issue. And then we turn around and talk about greed. So I did a little bit of updating in another chapter. Uh, at the end of, of the first book, I talk about a few a few people, and then I sort of update a little bit on that in, in the next one. But frankly, um, the main lessons are there in the 2007 version. It's 10 chapters long. I think it stands on its own. And I think that a lot of the lessons uh, remain quite timely. If I may, and this may be an unfair question, you can defer if you want. We could even cut this part out. 
it's, I don't even know the exact date and I should have looked this up. It is in the Harvard business review. And there is an article about uh, essentially NPS net promoter score and the person who promoted it, it was, he created it as a theory, you know, how do, how can we measure the loyalty of our customers uh, that, that we have? And he's even gone on to refute uh, some of the ways it's being used even today. But I have a frustration with NPS, mainly toward companies who hold it in such high regard. I would even make the argument, Phil, that there's a halo around this management tool, again, called NPS, because, okay, really, what is a 56 compared to a 62? And can just one question really give the big picture of a customer's loyalty? By the way, they may refer you but does this mean they're going to come back and buy from you or use your service in the future? Okay. So, um, sure. Uh, you're welcome to ask. I haven't read about NPS more generally, but I know in, at my school, we use it and we ask our own, uh, you know, executives to come on the programs, uh, you know, are they likely to, are they ambassadors? Are they likely to recommend are they detractors and so forth. So, it's a great question. So let me let me give you the way I would think about this, okay? I would think about it in two ways. The first is, what is NPS, if it is valid, if it is useful, what is it trying to predict? I think what it is trying to predict is loyalty and not just are you likely to come back, are you likely to say good things so somebody else might come back? And it is probably... Uh, you that can probably be tested. Uh, if people fill this out on the NPS, what is their subsequent behavior likely to be? And it is possible that it is a valid and quite good predictor. It's also possible that it's not. I, I have no particular view on that. The other thing that we might wonder about, is it something, I, here's where I would get nervous, Mark. I'd get nervous if somebody said, oh, NPS, doesn't just predict whether a customer is going to come back or recommend companies that are high in NPS outperform companies that are not. Now the dependent variable of interest is not a particular customer, it's overall firm performance. Okay. Now then that leads me to my next worry. There a halo effect where if a I know the company is a high performer, I tend to give it a, a good NPS score because if that's the case, then you've got a real problem of circularity. I know the company is a high performer that leads me to give it a high NPS score. And then we're going to take that high NPS score and say that it explains high performance of the company and that you cannot do. So I'm giving you a kind of two-part answer. In a limited way, if what we're trying to explain is customer loyalty and good testimonies, there are probably ways to see if the expression I give it now does lead to those things or not, and we could test that. And maybe it's valid. But if we ever get to the point where we're using it to explain firm performance, and we can show that what is known about performance actually biases the NPS, then it's completely invalid. So uh, on, on that point, I'm going to just loop now to something else that I, I think I talk about in the book, 
you, it's not quite NPS, but it's pretty close, which is some of these surveys that come out that talk about great place to work. Yes, okay? you do. You do. And so you'll see this every year. And there's a company, I think it's called, you know, Great Place to Work or something. And they go talk to people in different companies and they say, you know, how do you like being here and what's good about, you know, and then they come out and say, here are companies that are great places to work. And oh, by the way, that's not just useful in and of itself, but it has, they claim, a causal impact on the performance of the company. And so what they want to do, they want to sell their service to companies and say, if we can get you to improve your rating as a good place to work, look at the impact it will have on company performance. Well, could it be actually the causality is the other way around? If a company is performing well, surprise, surprise, people tend to think it's a good place to work. Why? Because they're more confident about the future because next year they're going to get a raise, because they're happy to tell their neighbors where they work. So be very careful about the direction of causality and whether company performance affects the way people rate it's a good place to work, as opposed to good place to work being a causal effect on performance. And I, I think NPS can be somewhat the same in that regard, which is why I would be a little bit skeptical but I'd want to, I'd, I'd give them a chance to say, how are you measuring it? What are you trying to explain? And are you meeting certain tests of validity in uh, the way you gather your data and make a claim about some performance outcome? And again, this is great feedback. I, I go back to something that uh, Ron Baker says, you've been on his show. I, I love his writing. I love the way he thinks. I can hear Ron in my ear just saying on NPS, Mark, it's a theory. It's a theory. It's a theory until you prove it to be an opinion or a fact or something maybe in between. So again, great, great feedback. That's very, very helpful. I want to wrap up. I do just want to share again, a couple more takeaways. Again, I can't stress enough the, the concept of relying on measures, independent performance. That is huge. Uh, throughout the heart of this book. Probably the other two takeaways is, Mark, always think for yourself. Don't let other people think for you. I know that can be hard. We just talked about a heuristic that can take control over the mind very, very easily and take little at face value. Now, I think for someone who's a natural prober, researcher, very analytical that's going to happen. But even those, even those of us who are research centric, we can fall for what's face value. But again, great takeaways. And again, I love the book, sir. I know you're a reader. We ask this of every author, every author. I'm going to try to slow down here to give you a chance to think what are some of your favorite books? So some of my favorite books, I, I'm, I'm going to assume these are kind of business or thinking related books. It can be um, any. By the way, oh, you, you earlier, before we hit record, you said you were uh, from uh, California. I just finished reading a couple of weeks ago, The Grapes of Wrath uh, for the first time. Oh, I'm a big Steinbeck okay. fan. So uh, so it can be fiction if, if, if you have it can be fiction. It does have to be business. I'm going to mention three that are that are kind of business related. Okay. Uh, one of them that I think is a very good complement to what I did is Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, right. which won't surprise anybody that uh, 
that I like that book. And and he was good enough to mention mine in passing. He, of course, is looking, he's a cognitive psychologist, but a lot about heuristics and biases right. and how the mind makes these shortcuts. And he saw fit to mention the halo effect and the way that um, we're tripped up in the business world by making attributions of performance. That's one. Another one that I like a great deal. If, if uh, you know, I, I mentioned in the book that there's this dichotomy between good storytelling and good science and that Good science often doesn't lead to a good story, but a lot of good stories are not good science. But one book that I, I really believe meets the test of doing both well is Clayton Christensen's The Innovator's Dilemma. Um, it, it I believe, is, is rigorous in its thinking, and it's a heck of a good story. It's counterintuitive in many ways. In other words, uh, how good companies fail not because they're badly managed but actually because people are trying to do the right thing um the head of marketing is listening to today's customers the cfo is trying to preserve today's profitability and we're not we're trying not to speculate on untested things we're trying to manage well but that makes us vulnerable to technologies at the margins untested and so i think that's a terrific book and then i'm going to i'm going to reach way back to Maybe the most important book I ever read, again, we're talking business. When I was in college, this is years ago, I took an investments class, and I think we read the first edition of Burton Malkiel's A Random Walk Down Wall Street. Of course. And so I read that in 1976. I was 21 years old, uh, and I, I just Im immediately understood something about random walks. And, you know, he predicted the need for low cost index funds when they did not yet exist. Right. And he served on the board of Vanguard for many years because what John Bogle did at Vanguard yes. was really the, 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 the manifestation or the fruition of what Mal Keel was looking at as an economist. The book is now in its, I don't know, umpteenth uh, edition but the lessons are really the the right ones. And so uh, that's a book that I, to this day, remain very grateful that a professor of economics at UC Santa Barbara recommended to me in 1976. Uh, you can get a, a newer version today, a newer edition, but really the lessons are the same. That's a random walk down Wall Street. So those are those are three. Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma, and then a random walk down Wall Street. CFO Bookshelf does not have a Hall of Fame yet. And that Hall of Fame will eventually have 25 books. Wow. Sir, your book is going to be in that Hall of Fame. Don't know when this is going to, how we're going to do this, but your book will be in our top 25, may even be in the top 10. So uh, I just want to let you know, this is how important of a book this is for business financial leaders of all kinds. Again, I cannot thank you for the work that you put into writing this book. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Um, I'm very glad. And I must say, uh, I, I it hasn't sold like some books has, but that have, but that's not really the point. I've been very gratified when people have written in and have said, you know, I I knew there was something a little bit funny in some of these books, but I couldn't really put my finger on what the problems were. But you've given me a way now to think more critically, to not be fooled, to use my good judgment, and so that's very gratifying. And um, 
I, I'm I'm pleased that we have uh, uh, a good audience with you there, Mark, and hope the the word gets out as well. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf: Lifelong Learning for Financial Leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. By the way, I'd like to correct myself if I may. I stated earlier that Jerry Porras was the co-author of Good to Great. That's not so. He was Jim's co-author on Built to Last, not Good to Great. By the way, that Jim Collins title I didn't mention it's because I couldn't remember it. Well, his first book was Beyond Entrepreneurship. That was published in 1992. And I think he has another book that came out in 94. It's not bad. It was just a bit dry. And one last comment about MPS. My favorite case study against it is behind a paywall on advertising age. While Jiffy Lube was garnering high NPS scores, it just wasn't translating into repeat business. Again, it's just one case, but it does prove a point. NPS, again, it's a theory until proven otherwise. Again, Phil Rosenzweig, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. The book is The Halo Effect. Read it. It's easily one of my top 25 books in business I've ever read. We need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.